Well, I'll invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. If you're visiting with us this morning or uh, you just don't have a Bible, please feel free to take one of these Bibles. We have Bibles at the ends of the rows, these blue books. Please feel free to take one. We have plenty of them. You don't need to ask. Just go ahead and take one home with you. But I'll ask you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. And this morning we'll be focusing on verse 5. We're going through uh, this series through the Beatitudes, uh, calling it the good life. The good life. Blessed are you is how all of these Beatitudes start. And today we find another Beatitude. Blessed are the meek. And so we're going to look and we're going to find out why. We're going to find out how to live this meek life, the blessed life. And so I'll invite you to turn there and I'll start in verse 1. Each week we're going to do that. We're going to start at the top, as they say. And we're going to read through. So we're going to read verses 1 through 5 this morning of Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> Hear the word of the Lord. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Pray along with me. Father, this morning we come before you, we come into your presence, and we want to pause before we begin and ask you to meet with us, to be here, to speak through your servants. Father, to open up our hearts and our minds And to take this truth of blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And to help us to understand it, help us to grab a hold of it, and to apply it to our lives, and to live this way for you and for your glory. Do that work in us, I pray. In your name. Amen. Blessed are the meek. That's not quite the slogan you would see that a lot of people would use in their life, or nor would you probably see in much of advertising. It's probably not the first character quality that you and I would present if we were in a job interview. Wouldn't say, I'm meek, and sell that. Probably if we were going to rewrite the Beatitude, we'd probably say, blessed are the powerful, for people defer to them. Our world, the world that we live in today, uh, it prizes individuality, individual power. It celebrates it. It exalts it. I came across this, uh, Amy Cuddy, who's a social psychologist. In 2012, she did this TED Talk on power postures. Think Wonder Woman, for example, okay? Power postures. She did this talk uh, in 2012, and Forbes picked up the story later this year, earlier this year in April. And this is what they said. They said, in 2012, power posing was all the rage. Job candidates, public speakers, and athletes were finding a few minutes alone to adopt Wonder Woman-like expansive body postures, hoping to boost their feelings of power. Amy Cuddy's TED Talk on the benefits of power posing garnered over 46 million views and has become the second most popular TED Talk to date. Now, what they did in this is they took those who did these power postures And they compared them to those who did these meek postures. This is how they defined it. 
and they looked at the hormone levels, the cortisol levels, which are like your stress hormone, and they noticed that there was a difference. But aside from that, what's amazing about this is, did you hear that number? 46 million, second most popular TED Talk to date. What does that say about us? What does that say about us as a people? Why are so many people interested? And I'm sure the thoughts are popping in your head right now was because we want to present in such a way that we look confident, that we look powerful, even if we don't feel it. Actually, in her TED Talk, that was one of the things she said. She said, I don't want you to fake it until you feel it. I want you to fake it until you become it. Fake it until you become it. Now, is wanting to feel strong and confident wrong? No, not at all. Is, is it wrong to want to present yourself in such a way that you are taken seriously and that you kind of command respect? No, not at all. Not at all. But how we do that, how we go about it, and what we think it means to present ourselves as powerful, well, that's another thing. And that's something that Jesus has to say to us this morning in Matthew 5, 5, where he says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Meekness is not a celebrated attribute. We don't lead with it, do we? Usually, we, some of us probably feel bad because you equate it with humility, which is right. But you say, oh, I don't want to say I'm the most humble person. I mean, can you imagine being in a job interview, right? And saying, so what's one of your, your great qualities? I'm very humble. I take great pride in it. You know, you can just see the, the smiles on the faces, you know, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't lead this way. But some look at that word and they don't use it because they think of it as, oh, it's weakness. It's cowardice. It's inability. And so there's a big misconception going on here with our understanding of meek. And Jesus rightly puts it in its place. And he tells us that even more that the meek will inherit the earth. So if there is a misconception of meek, so then what does it mean? What is meekness about? How do we understand this? Well, if you were to look up the definition itself, <clears throat> specifically if you looked up the, the Greek word praus, uh, which means meek, it speaks of being mild, being humble, being gentle. It has these different aspects to it that we're going to unpack here. But that's how, that's, that's kind of its basic definition. So in Matthew 5, 5, what's interesting is Jesus is actually quoting from Psalm 37. He's quoting from Psalm 37, 11 specifically, where it says, But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. And so here's Jesus quoting this. So rightly so, it's good for us to think about if we want to understand meekness, if we want to understand what it means to be meek, then let's look at where Jesus was quoting from. Let's take a look at this. So if you'll allow me for just a moment, I just want to give you a summary of what's taking place in Psalm 37. It's kind of a lengthy psalm, but basically it's a psalm of David, and he's speaking of not fretting and envying evildoers, because God will bring justice. It's a psalm that's encouraging David to trust in the Lord, to do good, to delight himself in the Lord. It says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. It encourages him to be still and to wait patiently. To not retaliate, but wait upon the Lord. And in the end, how he wraps it up is that he understands that God is his salvation. 
his stronghold, his helper, his deliverer. He says all these things, and he says these things because the Lord is his refuge. That's where he's going. Now, this doesn't sound like weakness or spinelessness. Rather, it's a submissiveness while being provoked. You see that in this psalm. It's a willingness to suffer rather than to inflict injury. And it leaves things in the hand of him who cares and who loves you. And so to put an even broader definition on this, it's humble, gentle power under control. I say that because this Greek word, what I didn't tell you before, praus, was actually a word that they used to speak of their horses once they had been trained, once they had been broken in, able to be ridden. They would use this word, praus, which means meek. They would say the horse is praus, which means that it's ready. It is strength under control. Um, There's a term in the equestrian world, which is probably no surprise. They might have gotten it from this. They call it gentling a horse. Some use the term breaking in, but avid equestrians don't prefer that term. They call it gentling. Gentling a horse where you train the horse to hear your command, train the horse to be able to be ridden, to listen to your commands, not to throw you off. And then here you have this huge animal under control listening to your commands. I don't know if any of you have ridden a horse. I've, I've ridden a few. It's uh, being in the Southwest uh, is kind of funny. It's still cowboy country in a lot of ways. It's very horse friendly. If you've ever been out there, they have horse trails. They, have the, you know, they, they favor horses, things like that. But if you've ever ridden a horse uh, and, you, and you sit on a horse, and as you sit on the horse, they'll, you know, they'll tell you, you're, as your legs are wrapped around the horse, as you're sitting in the saddle, all it takes is just a simple light tap with your heels and the horse starts walking. And you tap them again, they'll trot, generally speaking. That's if the horse is feeling like obeying for the day. And you tap them some more, and they'll even get into a gallop. And then you pull back on the reins, and they slow down, and then they stop. And all you have to do is you pull gently to the right, and as soon as that rein touches the left side of their neck, they go to the right. You do it to the left, as soon as the rein touches the right side of their neck, they go to the left. And here you are sitting on this beast that's 1,000 pounds, And when you talk to it, what's interesting is sometimes, as long as they're not feeling ornery, when you talk to them, their ears will twitch back toward you because they're listening. And here you're on this beast, this 1,000-pound beast. All this raw strength and power can just buck you off if you wanted to or not obey you. But here it is completely under your control. It is praus, strength under control. Gentle, humble, strength under control. Psalm 37 encourages us to be meek, to be that gentle, gentle, humble strength under control, power that's under the control of God. Um, who could do, you know, as you're reading through this psalm, you realize, you know, we could do a lot of damage if we weren't. Just like a horse. A horse could do a lot of damage if he didn't want to be this way. But yet this psalm is encouraging this strength under control. You know, one of the spots that we see this in Scripture is with a man named Moses. And maybe you're familiar with him, maybe you're not. Moses was a man in the ancient Near East. We meet him in the, in the Old Testament, that part of our Bible, the first 66 books. 
And we specifically meet him in the first five books, most, mostly those four books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We meet this man, Moses, who's called to lead God's people out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And as he's leading them through the wilderness, leading God's people, and there are probably over a million people at that point, you can imagine, it's a lot of people leading through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. And as you can imagine, being a leader, he was challenged. That happens, right? As you lead anything, you know at some point you will be challenged. That's a part of leadership. And he is at one point by Aaron, who's kind of his right-hand man. He's the priest. He's the one that God gave to Moses to be his mouthpiece back in Exodus, early parts of Exodus. And Aaron and his wife Miriam have risen up against Moses. But listen to what the Scriptures say in Numbers 12. Miriam... And Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. You hear that editorial comment right there? Right in the middle of this? And in your mind as you listen to the narrative of The meek man, what's he going to do? Some of your translations might say humble. But what's he going to do? How's Moses going to respond? Being challenged like this, being challenged by this, by his right-hand man and his wife, is he going to speak against them harshly? What's he going to do? But as you read through the rest of these few verses, you see he doesn't do that. He trusts the Lord to respond. The Lord does respond. And the Lord does bring punishment upon Miriam. But even then, Moses responds so well. He wasn't a perfect man. But he responded so well here and he prayed for her. And the Lord brought healing from her leprosy seven days later. And so I say that because it's easy in our lives, isn't it? When we are challenged, have been challenged, or maybe are facing challenges, or even facing blessings, How are we going to respond? How are we going to respond to these things? Especially when you're in a situation where you know what's really going on. You know you've been wronged. You know how the situation should really go. You know that this person really doesn't understand what they're talking about. And we have a challenge before us. How will we respond? I was reminded of this this week. Uh, This is one of those moments where you go, ouch. Because, right, as you read Scripture, Scripture's reading you. And as you look at your own life, I realize, you know, there's been a lot of times um, where I haven't responded that way. And I'll tell you how it looks for me sometimes, is that I respond where someone tries to tell me something, and I go, yeah, yeah, either in my mind or with my words, yeah, yeah, I know, I know, as if you could instruct me. I know, I know, I got it, I, I can take care of it. And what I don't even realize is so subtle, right? Sounds benign, but it's not. In my own life, that's such, right, defensiveness. That's not meekness. That's the opposite of it. Probably the best opposite word for meekness is probably arrogance, pride. And I saw that as I was thinking through this in my own heart. And so Jesus says, blessed are the meek. But why are they blessed? Why does Jesus say they're so blessed? He says, because they will inherit 
the earth. And that's where this moves next, the inheritance of the meek. And I want you to think about that for a moment, this idea of inheritance. Inheritance can be a great motivator, can it? It can be a great motivator. Something that is being promised to you in the future can be a great catalyst in the here and now. It can be a great motivator. It can be a great reason to hold on, to push forward, to stay steady, looking toward the end. And so the meek in this passage are getting a gracious inheritance. That's what's being laid out for them. It's not the strong. It's not the aggressive. It's not the harsh. It's not the tyrannical. It's the meek. And they will inherit the earth. And maybe part of you is going, not getting that right there. Not getting the power. You know, that doesn't quite speak. They will inherit the earth. Jesus. Have you been here? Have you looked around? Have you seen the earth? It's not all that great. Inherit it? Not sure that's a blessing there. What does that mean by that? What is Jesus getting at? What is he talking about? Well, in order to understand this, like I said before, you've got to go back to Psalm 37. You've got to go into the Old Testament and understand this idea of inheritance. And I know for some of you, you know this, but that inheritance often relates to entrance into the promised land. We see this from Moses in Deuteronomy 4, verse 1. And in chapter 16, verse 20, as well as in the prophets like Isaiah 57, 13. And so it relates to them coming into this land, the promised land, it did. But it was a sign of the reality. The reality that we will one day have in full, a new heavens and a new earth. This is also picked up in the prophets in Isaiah 66, 22, as well as in the New Testament, Revelation 21. So basically, at Christ's return, the meek will inherit the heavens and the earth. That's its fully realized understanding. Ultimate end. That we will inherit new heavens and a new earth. Listen to these words. Let these words wash over you from Revelation 21, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. He said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. What a promise of future fulfillment. But I want you to know something. It isn't just something that's locked up that maybe we'll get in the future. It is something in the future that we will have that will one day be fully realized, that we will see. But yet, we even have this now. We have this now, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, that we are seated now in the heavenly realms. And even in 2 Corinthians 6, 8-10, through where Paul was trying to commend himself to the Corinthian people. And he's saying this. Listen to his words. 
He says, we are treated as imposters and yet are true. As unknown and yet well known. As dying and behold, we live. As punished and yet not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. And listen to this. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. Just that little phrase. Having nothing, yet possessing everything. Paul understood as we have Christ and all the blessings that go with that, we have eternity with Him waiting for us. That beautiful inheritance. And this is something that is by His grace. This is something that, his, that we do not earn, that is promised to His people, that we have laying up for us in heaven and that we will one day be with Him enjoying that. Some of you may know this story. In 1952, there was a woman named Florence Chadwick. She was a swimmer. And one of the things she wanted to do uh, was swim from Catalina Island to the California coast. And if some of you know that, you know that can be a pretty treacherous, even if you're in a boat. There's a lot of potential for fog, things like that. Well, it's 26 miles to swim that. And so she prepared, she trained, and she dropped in the water and started to go. She had boats around her to kind of protect her from sharks and to protect her if she got tired. And as she swam, sure enough, fog moved in. And if you've ever experienced this, it's a really, really thick fog there in California. Still happens now. Um, This fog rolled in, and as she swam, she was getting tired. And her mom was on one of the boats, and her mom was encouraging her, you can do it, you can do it. And she's like, I don't think I can do it. And her mom kept encouraging her, you can do it. But finally she said, take me out, I'm done. I can't go anymore. And so she gets into the boat, and it's only then that she realizes she was a mile. She had a mile left to go. And this is what she said in the interview. She said, all I could see was the fog. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. But this is not where the story ends. Two months later, she drops in the water again, saying, I'm going to do this. And so she drops in the water, and sure enough, kid you not, the same fog rolls in. But this time, she made it. And so they were asking her, what, how did you make it? And this is what she said. She said, she kept a mental image of the shoreline in view. A mental image of the shoreline in view, even though she could not see it. Isn't that beautiful? Through God's Word, through the Holy Spirit, we have a mental image of that reality that is waiting for us in full. That wonderful inheritance. And the reason why that can be so powerful is that even as we go through difficulties, as we go through those choppy waters, the fog... With that mental image in view, it can be such a great encouragement and catalyst to keep going, keep going, keep swimming, keep swimming. And so we can say with Paul, as he said in 2 Corinthians 4, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen 
are eternal. This place is not all there is. It will be redeemed. There will be a new heavens and a new earth. And that can help us as we face difficulties, whether we are challenged by someone or we are facing challenges in our life, that we can look and that we can live in meekness, looking toward that reward that we will have one day. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You know, there's an interesting passage to go back to Revelation. It's in Revelation chapter 5. And if you have read through Revelation, maybe sometimes you're wondering, how do I make sense of this, this book? Well, kind of just to give you a brief overview of the book of Revelation is that it is apocalyptic literature. It is prophecy. It is also a letter. All those three genres mixed in. And as you go through this book, you see these different recapitulations of the end. Kind of like different vantage points of the end with each time giving you more detail. And so in Revelation chapter 5, we come to this part where there's this scroll. And there's this weeping because no one can open this scroll. No one can open it. And this scroll stands for God's plan of salvation to save His people. But there's no one to open it. And there's weeping in heaven until... Let me read you verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. A lion. A conquering lion. But then wait. Continue on here. Verses 6-10. through And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. There it is. That language. They shall reign on the earth. And you have this side by side. You have this conquering lion. But then you have this slain lamb. Imagine that picture. Jesus, that humble, gentle, power under control. The one who submitted to the Father's will. Who came, who took on flesh, took on a body, voluntarily limited His power. Came to earth. Lived a sinless, perfect life. Keeping the law perfectly. Was despised and rejected. Was the one who rode into Jerusalem days before his crucifixion in Matthew 21. And this is what Matthew points out from Zechariah 9 9. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. There's that meekness. Yet, it was this meek Christ, was it not? who overturned the table of the money changers in righteous anger, who was the one who went to the cross, died, was buried, rose again on the third day, 
went through that suffering, ascended into heaven, and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And it is this gentle, humble power under control that conquered. And because He conquered, we too have life in Him. He maintained His meekness all the way through. And He conquered. And it is a beautiful picture of that humble, of that mild, of that gentleness, of that power under control. Jesus is our meekness. If you have put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you, your sins have been forgiven. And you are covered and you've been wrapped in the righteousness of Christ. And you have been broken from sin. Broken from that slavery to sin. And you have the ability to be meek. To live in meekness. To live with that humble, with that gentle power under control. Under control of your Lord and Savior. And so I want to encourage you this morning to look to Christ. Look to Jesus. I'm not holding out to you this morning saying just go and be meek. Moralism. As if you just go and be meek and you're good. That's not it. It's only through Jesus Christ that you can truly be meek and look to Him to have the empowering grace to grow in that meekness. So that you are meek for God and to one another. That we live out that humble, gentle power under control. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. And Father, we want to be your humble, gentle people under your power and control. Father, we want to live those kind of lives amidst the challenges that we face, amidst the provocations. And Father, help us to be meek. Help us to live in this way and to shine forth and to be a shining light for you. Help us to take this in. Help us to think about ways in which we have not been meek. Will you forgive us? And will you help us to live for you and for your glory? And we ask all this in your name. Amen.